If you have a Bible, I can invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 43. I think it's page 48 in the Bibles in the pews. As a church, we have been looking or attempting to re-look at the story of Joseph the Dreamer. And so what I want to do is just set the scene and sort of place where the key characters are at this point in the story. Joseph is in Egypt. He is the governor of the land. He's second in command and he's responsible for coordinating and overseeing this massive food distribution program. And that's because the land, in fact, the whole world is gripped by severe famine. Simeon, who's one of his brothers, is also in Egypt. But he's lying in a prison cell. And he's lying there waiting for his brothers to return with Benjamin, the youngest, in order that he can be released. Released, as it turns out, by Joseph. But Simeon doesn't realize that it's his brother Joseph who's thrown him into jail. The rest of the boys are back in Canaan. Back in Canaan with their dad, Jacob, surviving on the food that they were able to buy and bring back after their first visit to Egypt. Now, Jacob won't allow the boys to go back to Egypt with Benjamin. He says, there's no chance you're doing that. You're not going back with my youngest to get Simeon. And in addition to this, Jacob blames his remaining sons for bereaving him of his children, Joseph and Simeon. And so as the famine continues throughout the whole world, life in Jacob's family and back at home is pretty miserable. And it must be quite stressful. So let's pick up the story in chapter 43, verse 1. But before we do that, let me show you or remind you of a great verse. It's a central truth about God. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Can I invite you to read this with me? Let's read this together and affirm this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now let me encourage you to just allow those words to sit with you. To to just filter through your thinking and in some way find a lodging place in your heart. That's a verse that appears seven times in Scripture. Perfect number. It's in the law. It's in Exodus 34. It's in the prophets, Joel, Jonah, both have it. It's in the wisdom literature of books of the Bible and Psalms, and in Psalms on a number of occasions, like Psalm 145 as well as here in 103. And it's in the history books. It's in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a really, really important truth. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the God we worship, the God we serve, is a God of mercy and grace. And if there's anything we must not forget, if there's anything we must remember, it's this. But the reason that I refer to this verse 
And this thought is because in Genesis 43, the mercy and the grace of God lie just beneath the surface. So let's actually uh, stand, as we often do, for the public reading of God's word. And if at any point you get tired because it's a reasonably long reading, you can sit down again, okay? But here we go. Genesis 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, or Jacob asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame for him before you for all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products off the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also, and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare a meal there to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks at the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph Stewart and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we've brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them some water to wash their feet, provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were to eat there. And when Joseph came home and presented to him the gifts they had brought into his house, and they bowed before him on the ground, and they asked him how they were. And then he said, how's your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. 
And he looked about, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him ate with themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for this is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. And when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as everyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Well done for staying standing. (laughs) So what we discover is that the food that the brothers had brought back from their first trip has ran out. But the famine isn't over. The food's gone, but they're still going to starve. And so Jacob suggests, listen, I want you to head back to Egypt. Go back from where you came and buy some more food. But Judah steps in and he actually states the obvious. He says, look, Dad, unless we take Benjamin back with us, then there's no point in making that journey. And Jacob's response in verse 6, if you have a look at it, once again reveals his rather, and we said this last week, his rather self-centered, selfish Poor me attitude. Because he blames everyone else for bringing trouble on him. And the reason that he blames them is simply because they told the truth. Surely something any dad, in a sense, would be proud of his boys for. Because they told the governor of the land they had a younger brother. And so Jacob holds it against them and he blames them. And Judah then comes up with a suggestion. Now, if you were here last week, you'll know that Reuben actually had this exact same suggestion. But at that stage, whenever Reuben suggested it to his dad, his dad wasn't interested. But Judah offers to take Benjamin back to Egypt on the understanding, on the basis that he's totally responsible for him. And if anything was to happen, if he doesn't bring him back, then Jacob can hold it against Judah, his fourth son, for the rest of his life. And in some ways, as you listen to Judah suggesting this, you observe, it's quite brave, Judah. It's commendable of you. It's honourable. It's a good idea. Now, for those, again, who've been following this series, you'll probably remember that the last time we met Judah in Genesis 38, he was actually involved in all kinds of extremely suspect behavior. His poor choice of friends stood out. And his horrendous treatment of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was not good, to say the least. And you would not have used words like brave, and commendable and honourable if you were describing Judah at that point in the story. But as we said that morning, God doesn't give up on people who make mistakes. Failure isn't final. In working out his purposes, God uses and is willing to use all kinds of people, even those who from our perspective appear totally unsuitable. And the family tree of Jesus, we said that morning in Matthew chapter 1, which includes Judah, 
makes that clear. Judah didn't cover himself in glory in chapter 38, nor did he in chapter 37, the very first chapter we looked at. But here in chapter 43, Judah grabs an opportunity to actually stand up and be counted, to stand up and make a difference. And as a result of his words, as a result of his actions, something significant changes. And Judah's intervention at this point in the story causes Jacob, his dad, to have second thoughts. When Reuben suggested it, he didn't want to know. But now, as Judah is making the suggestion, he thinks, okay. And so he allows Judah to take Benjamin back to Egypt, which in turn transforms everything. And the rest is history. And if nothing else, what this acts is as a reminder Never write anybody off. Never deem anyone unsuitable for use in God's kingdom. People, yes, may get it wrong at times. Badly wrong. And yes, people will have to live with the consequences of the choices they have made at certain points in their lives. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't mean they've blown it for good. It doesn't mean there's no way back. It doesn't mean that that person can never again be used by God for his purposes and to change situations dramatically. And I know there are some people here this morning, and that is a wee bit of your story. And you feel you've made some huge mistakes in the past. And you're at a different place, but you actually struggle to think that God could ever use you again. And I want to suggest he could. Based on this story at this point in time. So Jacob listens to Judah. And he goes with his suggestion. But he says, listen, I don't just want you to take Benjamin. What I also want you to do is I want you to take some gifts. Gifts like honey. And I love it, pistachio nuts. I have no idea why pistachio nuts. They must have been popular at that time. Plus twice the amount of silver. Because... You brought silver back with you and you'll remember how they thought that they had paid for the grain and that was that. But actually when they returned back home and opened their sacks, they discovered that the money that they thought they had paid for the grain with was in their sacks again. And that scared the life out of them. And they said, why has God done this to us? And so Jacob says, listen, I want you to take back twice as much silver uh, as you found in your sacks the last time. And then Jacob prays. This is a really significant moment in the story. Because for a start, this is the only reference to God on the lips of Jacob in the whole Joseph story. At least until Jacob discovers that Joseph is still alive, but that's rushing way ahead. But in praying at this time, and in referring to God by name, as the boys leave for Egypt... This, you've got to say, is surely a step forward for Jacob. Because we said last week that 20 years have passed. 20 years passed from the end of Genesis chapter 37 to last week in Genesis 42. And what we discovered was that Jacob was stuck in a moment. He hadn't moved on. But here, now, in light of Judah's intervention, in light of Judah's encouragement, there's a shift, there's a change in perspective. And what does it do? It prompts prayer. It prompts a cry from Jacob's heart. And it's a short prayer. But it's really important, and it's this. May God Almighty 
grant you mercy. And the first time that this particular name of God appears in Genesis is actually back in Genesis chapter 17. And we looked at this as part of our journey into the unknown with Abraham. Whenever God appeared to Abraham and said, listen, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. And it's a name of God that emphasizes, I am infinitely powerful. And Jacob picks this name up here because given his circumstances, given what's at stake, given what has gone before, Jacob recognizes his need and his family's need of El Shaddai, of God Almighty, of God of the impossible, God of infinite power, God of infinite resources. This is the God that we need at this point in our lives. And I've no doubt that there are some people here this morning and you find yourself in the midst of situations that appear relatively daunting. Circumstances that that weigh heavily upon you, challenges that cause you sleepless nights, maybe you even find it hard to concentrate this morning because there's stuff going on in your life that's really weighing upon you. And therefore, if nothing else, what you need to be reminded of this morning is that God is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Still God Almighty. Still with him, nothing is impossible. He has the power to transform, the strength to deliver, the ability to see you through whatever it is you're facing at the moment. But there is another dimension to this prayer. Jacob longs for his sons to experience the mercy of Almighty God. This is actually the first time that the word mercy has appeared in Scripture. First time in the Bible. It hasn't been used at all as yet, let alone in connection with God. But as we all know, this will become one of the words most closely associated with and connected with God and to God in the rest of Scripture. It's a covenant word. And in this situation, Jacob identifies and recognizes what they all need to know, what we all need to hang on to at this moment in our lives is the mercy of God. The mercy of God Almighty. And mercy is a part of God's character. And it refers to his loving kindness. It refers to God's ability to show and to have compassion on those in need. And Jacob, sensing the reality of where he's at and their family is at, he prays. And he asks that they, as a family, would experience the mercy of God. Which elsewhere, as we know, is described in the Bible as rich abundant mercy it's sure it's everlasting it's tender mercy and again for some people here this morning that is a prayer we need to echo for ourselves or it's a prayer we need to echo for someone else may god almighty grant whoever mercy And in Jacob's prayer, the next bit goes on and says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before that man, so that. But for you and for your family, how would you complete that prayer? May God Almighty grant you mercy where? In what situation do you need to know the mercy of God? 
Why do you need to know the mercy of God? So that what will happen? I encourage you to just take that away and reflect on that today and maybe consider completing that prayer for yourself. But there is a critical point to bear in mind. And that's just to celebrate the fact that God does act in mercy, not because we deserve it, not because of who we are or anything we have done, but God acts in mercy simply because it comes naturally to him. Because the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we are introduced in Genesis 43 to the mercy of God. And in verse 14, the first scene ends. And as the next scene begins, the drama shifts from Canaan back to Egypt. And when the brothers arrive with gifts and with money, but more importantly when they arrive with Benjamin, Joseph immediately orders his steward to prepare a feast because they're all going to eat together at noon. And so the steward takes the brothers to Joseph's house. But they interpret this as a really bad saying. And so they're scared. And they fear the worst. And so they quickly start telling the steward the story all about the silver. And they try to excuse why it was that they ended up back at home with a silver in their sacks. But the steward stops them in mid-flow. And I love this bit. And, And he tells them to calm down. And then in what can only be described as a major stroke or example or case of irony, he, an Egyptian, reminds the Hebrew boys who should have known better that their God, the God of their father, might just be at work here. He might just be involved in the midst of all this chaos and distress. And I find that fascinating that it's sometimes those outside of the faith who wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as Christians. It's sometimes those people that speak powerfully into our lives. It's sometimes our colleagues in work who actually say something to us that is almost as if it's directly from God. That reminds us about what we actually believe. That actually says, hang on a minute, you're a Christian. Do you not sort of see things from a different perspective? From a God perspective? And here was an Egyptian reminding a group of Hebrews that it's in the nature of God to actually be generous. Maybe it was God who put that silver in your sacks. The boys hadn't even thought of that. Now what happens next, I can only imagine must have been a really awkward moment. Because Simeon gets brought out. The brother who's been lying in prison for whatever length of time, and we're not told how long, actually, the gap between Uh, Genesis 42, 43 is. But for whatever length of time, he's been lying in prison waiting to be restored. And it now happens, and in a sense you think, brilliant! But think about this for a moment. Simeon doesn't know that the only reason they're back here is because the food ran out. The only reason they're back here is because the famine is still alive and well. And therefore, the only reason that the brothers have returned isn't to bring Benjamin in order to release Simeon. The only reason they've returned is because Jacob said, you know something, you need to go back and buy more food. We're going to starve to death here. And then it was Judah who stepped in and said, take Benjamin. And I'm not sure if Simeon was ever told the truth, but I'm sure there were some anxious looks amongst the brothers. 
as he was brought out. And he thanked them for coming back for him. Now at this point in the story, dream number one actually comes true to the letter. And again, if you remember last week, the dream kind of came true. Ten of the brothers went to Egypt and bowed before Joseph. But here, now Benjamin's with them. So all eleven are prostrate before Joseph. And that was exactly what he dreamed the first time round. And then... It says, as Joseph looked specifically at Benjamin, his youngest brother, he prayed. He said these words, God, be gracious to you, my son. And so in Genesis 43, Jacob has drawn attention to the mercy of God. But here, now, Joseph draws our attention to the grace of God. You see, God is by nature merciful, but he is also by nature Gracious, The Lord is merciful and gracious. And the grace of God, how do you begin to describe that? It's God's unmerited favor. It's his unconditional love. It's his deep desire to be good to you, to be generous to you, even though you don't deserve it. And it is one of those, and we often say, a mind-blowing aspect of God's character. And therefore, any simple or single definition is always going to be inadequate. Because as someone has said, and I found this during the week, the subject of grace is so vast, so comprehensive, that any kind of exploration of the incomparable riches of God's grace, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, is like opening a bank vault only to discover that it goes on for miles. God's grace is amazing. It is, if you like, outrageous. It does change everything. And therefore, Joseph... Praise that for Benjamin. God, be gracious to you. He prays that, God, that Benjamin would experience God's grace in his life. And again, like Jacob's prayer, that is a prayer I've no doubt that many of us could echo for others. I want God to be gracious with my family. I want God to be gracious with my friends. But you know, it's one thing to pray it for someone else. And as we draw this to a close this morning, it's another thing to practice grace for yourself. You can pray it that someone would know God's grace, but it's another thing to practice grace in someone else's life. And in what follows at the tail end of the chapter, it's been suggested that Joseph's actions are slightly at odds with his prayer. Up to this point, Joseph has reflected generosity. He has reflected grace He's provided a feast for his brothers. He was concerned for their welfare. He asked them how they were doing. He asked them, was their father still alive? But now, instead at this moment, putting an end, in a sense, to the charade and finally revealing who he was. Surely this was the time he should have done it. Benjamin's now here. But he doesn't. He still doesn't reveal who he is. And in fact, he hides his affections. He looks at Benjamin and he says, God, be gracious to you. But instead of just breaking down in front of him and embracing his brother, what does he do? He walks away to cry, to wash his face, to control himself, and then to come back in and order the stewards to serve the food. And in addition, he chooses to continue to eat separately from the boys in true Egyptian style. And then Joseph expresses favoritism, like father, like son. Because he gives Benjamin five times as much as he gives everybody else. 
Joseph here doesn't exactly model the graciousness of God. He still prolongs the boy's agony. He still hasn't reached that place where he can forgive them and be totally reconciled to them. And as we said last week, forgiveness is hard. And it's hard especially whenever you've been hurt and you've been let down and betrayed really badly. And forgiveness can be especially hard whenever you're confronted face to face with the person or the people you need to forgive. And whenever Joseph was away from his family, whenever he was away from his brothers, it seems he did okay. His integrity in chapter 39 was impressive. His patience, his hard work in chapter 40 as he languished unjustly in a prison cell, it was commendable. His wisdom, his discernment in chapter 41 was obvious. So obvious that Pharaoh drew attention to it said, you're the most discerning wise person I've ever known. But yet, when he's standing face to face with his family, it's not quite the same. Joseph's virtues shine brightly against a family-free background. But whenever his family are standing in front of him, maybe some of what we said last week, the unresolved anger still raises to the surface. He still can't bring himself to say, okay, guys, I forgive you. As I said, it's one thing to pray for God's grace in someone else's life. It's another to practice grace when you have the opportunity. And hopefully another chance will come along for Joseph to be gracious to his brothers. But Roy will no doubt pick that up next week. And so at the beginning of this chapter I said we're provided with glimpses into the character of God. We are at the very least introduced to the mercy and grace of God. And the thing about God's character is we should allow it to shape our own. We should be people who reflect mercy and grace whenever we walk out of here. Is it Luke who said, be merciful as your father is merciful? And Paul urged Timothy to command Christians to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be gracious and willing to share. And so as we leave this place this morning, I want to echo Jacob's prayer for you. That God Almighty would grant you mercy. And I want to echo Joseph's prayer for you. May God be gracious to you. But I also hope and pray that every one of us this week would behave mercifully and graciously and generously towards everyone we meet, starting at home and then letting it spill out from there.